Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Are you a capitalist? And if so, why? I am, but only from that perspective of there being markets that work. I hate markets that are rigged. And what we have in too many sectors are markets that are rigged. We don't have capitalism. Now, you might know my special guest on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast from his regular contributions to Eamon Dunphy's podcast, The Stand, and indeed his regular columns in the Irish Times, and of course, his own podcast uh, with Jim Power, which they call The Other Hand. Um, I've always found economist Chris Johns to be highly intelligent, wonderful with words, and very insightful about a lot of the issues I also find fascinating. Like who or what is the markets? And why do they seem to exert so much control over all of us? How did the UK become such a basket case so quickly? Why do economists get paid so much to make predictions that 90% of the time they admit turn out to be wrong? Why are bankers insisting that they are talented and that they need to be paid millions in order to mind our money? There was so much I wanted to ask Chris Johns about that we talked for almost two hours. So we've decided to chop it up and into two parts for you. This episode is the first part of our chat, and here's a little taster of what's coming up. Proper economists don't forecast, and the reason why some economists still forecast is because there are idiots out there willing to pay them to do so. If only people would stop paying them, we would stop forecasting. This is one of those rules for this particular aristocratic set of people. Um, it, it, it is their code of behaviour. This is how they behave. And, and don't be a bore is the ultimate put-down. You can be a mass murderer. You can be any kind of criminal, but don't be a bore. Ended up being able to sort of retire on my 55th birthday. I made enough to be able to have the confidence to give up full-time work, yeah. but not enough to, to actually stop up. working. Yeah, but who would want to stop working anyway? Exactly. And that, well, that's a great piece of advice, financial as well as life advice to anybody. Just don't stop. We live in this winner-takes-all world where a vanishingly small number of people take most of the gains. I think that is partly why we got Donald Trump and Brexit, is because the people who have been screwed by the system reacted against being screwed. That they voted for people and events that didn't help them is almost beside the point. I think that you're really going to enjoy this episode, folks. It's all coming up for you very shortly. But first, let's check in with the Mario Rosenstock podcast hotline voicemails this week. It's been a busy one. Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. Hello, Mario. This is David McWilliams. Love Chris and Jim's podcast. (laughs) Not quite as good as mine, but, you know, they're getting there. He's a subscriber, of course. Um, However, if they are really serious about breaking into the celebrity economist world, they need to work a lot harder on their cheesy financial analogies and metaphors. For example, interest rates are like my fringe. Sometimes they're floppy. Sometimes they're curly. Sometimes they're bouncy. Sometimes they're wavy. Or... The government's windfall tax pile from tech companies is like air in a tyre. When there's too little, it looks floppy and flaccid. When there's too much, it might burst and the car will crash into a ditch. Etc, etc, (laughs) etc. 
Hello to you, Mario Rosenstock. This is Boris Johnson calling you about the erstwhile appearance and auspicious occasion of uh, podcasting legend Chris Johns onto your podcast platform. I hear you're going to be talking about me and my Eton and Oxbridge chums like Mogzy and uh, Camo and Govi and all the rest as how we basically skated our way through classics and PPE, etc. And how we basically run the UK. Uh, fish and chip shops, Toblerone, Haribo, whatever you think yourself, Hunky Dory, Tato, it's one for all the family. Uh, Chris, even though you were raised in a far less salubrious circumstances as I, uh, of course, you in Cardiff and Saskatchewan and Canada, etc. Ipso facto, we would still like to invite you into our cabal. Nay, our bully, 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 bullingdon club, as chief economist God knows we need a little bit of a dig out in that area. Bully, 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 bully. This is Michael O'Leary. A little birdie told me that Chris Johns plans to bang on about how some companies have too much power and should be broken up. Shut up, Johns! <laughs> well, there's obviously lots of excitement about this one, so let's get straight to the chat. So please welcome the highly intelligent, eloquent, erudite, articulate, lover of words and respected economist, political philosopher, I would say, and podcaster, Chris Johns. Chris, I'm a big fan of your um, contributions to Eamon Dunphy's The Stand, and I also listen to your podcast as well, with uh, The Other Hand, with uh, Jim Power. And well done for getting it up and uh, on, the, on the road. Yeah, and, thanks. Yeah. It, was, um, it had a slightly odd genesis. Uh, Jim and I, being the odd nerds that we are, during lockdown, remember that? We used to have conversations as I went out for my solitary walks that we just um, one day had the idea we'd stick it up and see what happens and it was successful beyond anything that we imagined and still going so yeah thanks Mm. and I've been exposed to a lot of your uh, contributions your opinions your great vocabulary by the way I'm a fan of people with interesting that use interesting words and you use um, you use interesting words and you're clearly a person that likes um, that likes words yeah I think that's fair yeah and uh, uh, and um, so, so I've been interested in that. But but one thing I don't know about you is anything about your own personal background. And that's something I wouldn't, wouldn't mind if you could help me with. Maybe a potted biography of yourself. I once knew a billionaire, only one, who used to host dinner parties on Park Avenue every Christmas for what he considered to be interesting people. And I only say that because I can obviously consider myself to be interesting at times. And you begin the conversation with these people who he regarded as interesting by asking them, what happened to you when you were 17? Yes. And there was always trauma. There was always something that had turned them, helped turn them into very interesting people. Um, and well, what happened to you when you were 17? I left home at 15. So I've, I've uh, been, been uh, living on my own since I was... Why? Oh, long story. Um, to do with a family that moved to Canada and uh, from where I was growing up at the time in Wales and I didn't. Um, Your family moved to Canada and you didn't. Yes, yes. That's peculiar. May I just interrupt you there for a minute? Because my family um, moved away from me when I was five. (laughs) Are we surprised? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? We've only started the conversation. Well, uh, you don't know me that that, well. That's what people say to me when I tell them my parents moved away from me when I was 15. They say exactly that. Yeah, they moved to Germany when I was five. Uh, Anyway, and um, okay. And then what happened to you? Um... Just usual stuff, college, uh, very nearly didn't go to college, um, but eventually... And where did you go? I went to college in London for, I was a student for seven years, Mm. a couple of institutions, a place called Southbank and graduate school at Queen Mary, it's in the East End. Mm. Uh, So I I grew up on a 
council estate in South Wales. Working class boy, working class hero, first kid on either side of the family to go to uni and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I guess I didn't even have this accent. Once upon a time, I would have had a, a stronger South Walesian Cardiff accent, which yeah. is very like the Scouse accent, actually. All right, uh, so... Yeah, that's, yeah, there's a bit of Cardiff in there as well, yeah. Yeah, so it's related there and that, yeah, yeah. sort of. Yeah. So um, so I went from a council estate in Cardiff to, um, when I was in graduate school, I ended up teaching economics at Cambridge University. Long journey by a very, very Class. circuitous route. Um, Real prestige there. Well, a bit, a bit. I didn't get any degrees from Cambridge, but I just taught there. Hmm. And uh, the, my career has always taken hairpin bends. Um, I've been very lucky, done lots of different things. I started out really as a civil servant working for the British government in their finance ministry, what they call the Treasury. And that was in the 80s. And I got sucked into the City of London, which is the financial district, uh, because of something called the Big Bang, which is a big series of reforms that meant that any halfwit working for the government ended up with a phone call asking them to go and work in in an investment bank. And that's what happened to me. And then I had a career of all sorts in financial services, but with a couple of diversions along the way into things like journalism. Mm. I've uh, written for um, a long time ago for a newspaper you may have heard of. It's extinct now called the Sunday Tribune. Of course, um, Vincent Brown, I a met friend Vin- of mine. I educated Vincent in the back bar of toners on short selling in foreign exchange markets during the great currency crises of the early 1990s. That was an interesting conversation. Yeah, the guy I worked for there was uh, uh, a journalist, sadly deceased, about 10 or 11 years ago now, a guy called Alan Ruddock. Ah, yes, and of the yes. Sunday um, Times as well. He was Sunday Times, he was editor of The Scotsman, mm-hmm. and just before he died, he was a very prominent columnist for the Sunday Index. That's right. Great man, great man, tragically died far too young. Mm. So it was Alan, actually, that introduced me to journalism. I've written columns for the Irish Times for years, on and off, um, and uh, ended up, uh, very luckily, I suppose, being able to sort of retire on my 55th birthday which was 10 years ago now. I'm an old man. What do you mean you retire? Well, You stopped working in the mainstream? I stopped working in the mainstream full-time and did that very middle-aged thing of collecting a portfolio of activities, of which this is one. I podcast. Yeah. I still write, um, and I do various other gigs. I um, do consultancy work. I'm going to meet my my pal Jim Power this evening to discuss our latest gig together, which, which is writing about... Wind, wind energy, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. So I'm well, very so, lucky. I get to do lots of different so, things. So without prying or without being sensitive, and I don't think you'd even mind this. So, so you made a few quid, maybe, and but before you were 55, and you had a little bit of a pot, which you'd have to manage, presumably, and you said, I can manage this. I made enough to be able to have the confidence to give up full-time work, yeah. but not enough to, to actually give stop up. working. Yeah, but who would want to stop working anyway? Exactly. And that, well, that's a great piece of advice, financial as well as life advice to anybody. Just don't stop. Keep going, whatever it is that you're doing, even when you don't need the money. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I remember John Gielgud, um, the famous actor. I think it was, he was walking up on stage at the Oscars to collect an Oscar when he was 90, 95 or something, years of age. And I just went, why would anybody want to stop when you can keep going? Your um, relationship with Ireland is close. You're kind of, I suppose... I don't want. To, I never like to label somebody, but there's a touch of. You're a little bit Anglo-Irish, isn't that right, Chris? I, well, ethnically, I'd be a quarter Irish. Okay. I have a hundred percent. I had a hundred percent Irish grandmother, um, and her father was from Clonakilty, and her mother was from Waterford. Hmm. So, uh, although the fact that I, my background is, uh, I was born in Canada, actually. So crazy mixed up kid. English mother, half Welsh, half Irish father. 
Um, and I came to live in Ireland when everybody was going the other way in 1988. <laughs> the, uh, the planes were full leaving and pretty empty coming. It was a very, very different time, very different Ireland. But I came here having married an Irish woman uh, that same year, uh, ended up living here in, in, towards the back end of 1988. And I kind of sort of split my time between the UK and Ireland these days. Um, I'm based in Wales, actually. But I've got lots of different activities, lots of friends. Um, my son is here. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I lived here for 30 years. And among other things, you I think you were you worked with Bank of Ireland and the Central Bank, was it? No, no not, not the Central, Central Bank, Bank, of Bank of Ireland. The Bank of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I came to work for the Investment Bank of Ireland, it was called, back in 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, moved into the, the bank proper for a couple of years. While still living here, I did that awful thing. I don't think you could do it anymore because it's too difficult. But uh, back in the early 90s, commuting. So I did Monday to Friday in London for a while because I went back into the... Into 275 quid a ticket on an Aer Lingus. <laughs> it was expensive, and uh, it, but wasn't quite so fraught. I could yeah. leave my house in South County, Dublin, at half six in the morning in a taxi uh, for a half seven flight. Couldn't do that ah, today. Okay. Um, and so you're very close connections with Ireland and you have a warm affinity for Ireland. And, uh, very, and, very much and, so. And that comes across when you talk to Eamon on, on the stand. And one of the things I wanted to, 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 you to, to, to pour forth on is, is the extraordinary, if you like, uh, axis shift in our, the way we look at politics in Ireland and England over the last 20 years. So... All of our lives, we've been used to the big brother across the water and order and our the colonial friend and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the efficiency and order of the parliamentary system over in the UK always being solid. And the madness of the chicken and chip circuit over here and Charles J. Hawley and you never knew what was going on. And Albert Reynolds and all these funny people with their planning problems and planning issues and and Liam Lawler and all this shenanigans and the land of cowboys and all this. And then in the last few years, it's done a complete turn that all the madness, the chaos, the disruption, the corruption, the underhandedness, the inefficiency, the slovenliness, the low standards are all happening over there. And the high standards, or at least what we would say are higher standards, are happening over here. Chris, what has happened to UK politics? Or, and even maybe to narrow my question down, is the UK or Britain in something of a meltdown? There's a lot there to unpick. I'll start with an anecdote of when my first son was born. So this would have been 24 years ago. And he was born in the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street. And uh, I was having a drink, quiet drink, across the road. And the barman, uh, I recognised his accent. It was a London accent. So a Londoner working in Dublin. We swapped stories. He was here for the same reason I was, effectively. He married an Irish girl. And um, he asked him what, where he lived. It was Ring's End. And asked him what he thought. And he said, it's great. Love it here. So we, we swapped love stories for Dublin. And But he said, you know, and he looked around. He said, but you know, it's like the Wild West. <laughs> so this was a boy from the East End of London describing Dublin as the yeah. Wild West. Things have changed, as you say, a lot. He wouldn't say that now. It's it, As you say, it's flipped. It's reversed. And there are lots and lots of reasons for that. 
But you've got to start with Boris Johnson and what he has done to the British body politic, British society, uh, via Brexit. All of those things have degraded so much about British life. I was in London yesterday. I'm just off the plane here in Dublin now. And I had two conversations with two very, very different people. One very erudite, Oxford graduate, multiple degrees, hyper-intelligent Anglo-Irish man, um, certainly has lots of Irish roots, telling me that obviously he was very well established in the UK and his business was going great and all the rest of it. But if he had his choice all over again because of what is happening there now... He wouldn't live there. He wouldn't choose to live there anymore. And I can't tell you the number of people I have that same conversation with because of the sort of things that you mentioned. And then I had a social evening with some old buddies of mine from North London, from my uni days. And from a very, very different perspective, they were talking about, you know, if only they could move to somewhere like Spain to get out of um, the hellhole that they, they perceive the UK to be in. Of course, they can't go and live in Spain anymore because of Brexit. Mm. And Brexit is, of course, perhaps the emblematic contributory factor to to everything that has gone on. But there are lots of things gone wrong in the UK. It is partly political and and the rise of Johnson-style politics. As an economist, I tell you, it's got an awful lot to do with the economy. Because the UK economy essentially for years now, since before the financial crisis, hasn't grown. Starting to look like Italy. Italy is another one of those European economies that gets itself into economic, social, and political troubles because there isn't economic growth. And when you ain't got a pie that's increasing in size, the fights over sharing that pie get very nasty, very vicious, very quickly. Because if you're going to increase your share of a pie that ain't growing, you've got to take it from somebody else. And that's a large part of what's going on in the UK. There's just no economic growth. You couldn't contrast that more with here. Yes. Here you have your fights about the division of the pie. and Especially regarding housing. Housing, health, all of those things that, that you know appear in every discussion you have around the dinner table or the bar stool. It's always about housing and health in Ireland. But you're fighting about a pie that is growing. You've got lots of money to spend and there will be lots of money spent on these things going forward. We know that from recent announcements from the coalition but there ain't no money in the uk and that really is one of the key fundamental problems it faces now brexit is part of that brexit's one of the reasons why the uk economy ain't grown but there are lots of other reasons as well Um, it's an economy that just doesn't invest in itself Um, it's an economy that's neglected its regions for far too long Um, london and the southeast has done very well the rest of the country hasn't And growing inequality has been a big, big UK problem. So it's got US-style inequality problems, but if only it had some US-style economic growth to alleviate some of them. So, you know, it's it's in a real mess. My co-conspirator Jim Powell often takes me to task on how pessimistic and negative I am about the UK. And I I have to go away and think, "Mm, maybe he's got a point. Maybe I, you know, the UK isn't, is it that bad? And in many respects, it is. And it's not just me. You can read learned articles in the Financial Times about how hard, it, um, how bad things are, backed up with millions of graphs and tables and data, um, going through all of the things that yes. I've just mentioned, particularly the economy, and why the economy has so many social and political consequences. It's, it's nasty, and there's no sign of it getting any better. No, um, and I suppose... Like I'm not an economist, and and you are, but I suppose I can. I, I've seen, I've heard people like you talk, and I can parrot what people like you have said. And one of the things that I've heard people like you say is that the UK, for example, has the lowest growth in the OECD uh, next to Russia. 
That's correct. And this this is this is this is really stunning. But I don't want to do a deep dive into the economy because that's not really what this podcast is about. And you've already answered the question beautifully. But maybe I'd like to branch it out a bit. I'm currently reading a book called Chums by a guy called Simon Cooper who is a kind of a, a good uh, Financial Times journalist. And Chums is a, is, a, is a book which tells the story broadly of Oxford University in the 1980s and the people that came from Oxford. And would you believe the names of those people? David Cameron, Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg. All of these people, this tiny cohort, this tiny cabal of people which have ended up running one of the top six economies in the world pretty much into the ground as far as I would see it and running the country and um, fighting over over who becomes Prime Minister. What is wrong with Britain that a small number of toffs control the entire um, system? It's an interesting question as to how it's happened, but it's a very accurate observation. This is what has happened because it's not just the same university. Most of these people went to the same school. Eton. Eton, that's right. Most of them, not all of them, did the same degree. A thing called politics, 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 philosophy and economics. It's also called modern greats. It used to be called classics. and It was Oxford's attempt many decades ago to try and modernise its curriculum. And PPE is the degree that was originally designed for people to run the country. Mm. And uh, all of the people coming out of Oxford with this degree have ended up, um, all of the cabinet have ended up having done this degree. Theresa May was an exception. Um, to give you an idea about how snobbish these people are, um, Theresa May's degree was from Oxford was in geography. And they sneer, oh, that's just colouring in. <laughs> and Boris Johnson did, um, he did classics. classics. Yeah, um, so he wasn't a PPE graduate. I imagine PPE was probably a bit too too much hard work for Johnson. Too much detail. Too much detail, something he's not very interested in. I've read Simon Cooper's book. He wrote a great article in the FT only last weekend, actually, looking at the question of what do the Brexiteers think now that they've wrecked everything. And it was almost a deep psychological dive into a group of people that have wrecked Britain and positing that really they can't admit it even to themselves. So they have to... Um, almost in a Soviet-era Pravda-like way, pretend that everything is fine. And and as a result, Brexit as a disaster is the great taboo in British politics. Can't talk about it. You're not allowed to talk about it. Not even if you're in Labour. Labour, they don't want to talk about it either. They 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 think it's toxic politically. They think that the one gift that the Tory party is praying that they are given is that Starmer starts saying something nice about Europe. And... That will just reignite all the culture wars that we've been going through for the last while and reinvigorate the red wall that collapsed during the last general election, all that stuff. And Starmer, probably uh, correctly from a nakedly political point of view, is not falling into that trap because it is still so toxic politically at street level in Britain. But the fact is, until they do, until somebody in power actually admits Brexit has been a complete and utter disaster, nothing is going to be done substantively uh, to correct the mistakes that have been made. There is one small caveat about that. Sunak, Brexiteer though he is, is on the choir, on the QT, cozying up to Europe. He did the agreement over Northern Ireland, the Windsor 
arrangement thing that he did. And now he's trying to, for example, there's only a story today that one of the big bugbears of people in the UK trying to get into Europe for their weekend break, trying to go to France or Spain, it's hours waiting at Dover. It, the queues at the airport um, for the passport control are ridiculous. And so he's trying to introduce new ways that British people can actually visit Europe more smoothly than they were in the past. It's not like here. In Ireland, you have, it goes all the way back to 1921, the common travel area. So I just sailed through passport control at Dublin Airport. Can't do that anymore in Paris or Madrid. You have to get in the non-EU queue, which is always two miles long. Yeah. I've just been texted by a mate who's gone from Dublin to Malaga with his British passport. And he had to get in the different queue to his wife. Yes. And it's well, chaos. There's, there's gifts going around of the queue. And you see the two queues and you see the pitying looks of the Europeans looking at the British queue as the Brits kind of, you know, frustratingly wait in line. And it's the, real. Boris, I want to try and get back to this, the, the nub of this, because it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Eton, Oxford and Chums. Try and help me with this. <clears throat> How did he get away with it? How did he get to where he is? How does somebody like that who is so transparently fake, transparently idiotic, a known, proven liar, dissembler, outright liar. By the way, sorry uh, for my audience, Chris is nodding along with what I'm saying. And you know. um, he is a philanderer, a cheat, a multiple serial adulterer, um, uh, duplicitous, uh, corrupt. Um, fraudulent all of these things I wouldn't even have a hope of, of being defaming him by saying any of these things these are all these are all these are all patently and and, and, and historically uh, fact checked how can somebody like that slip through the net when for example sorry for babbling on but when for example they will say but I mean he's, he's a wonderful wonderful erudite speaker and he can hold the room he cannot hold the room his jokes are shit. Yeah, no, he absolutely is a, is a hopeless public speaker. Hopeless, but this is a myth. Mm, mm. But you, you, there are lots of reasons for his success. One, I'm the wrong person to be asking because the, you, the person you want to ask is the... Because all of the questions that you've just raised have, have caused um, the surveyors to, to go out, um, opinion pollsters to go out and ask those very questions. Why do you like Boris? And the answer that comes back most of off, most often from people that vote for him, particularly from men, is, well, he's the sort of bloke you could have a pint with. Now, you and I would probably recoil from the thought of sharing a drink with Boris Johnson, but he does have popular appeal. That list of attributes that you just spoke to does appeal to a certain cohort of the population, sadly. It, it just clearly does. The second thing that he had going for him when he won that big majority three or so years ago was the fact that he was running against Corbyn. And that was a gift. Um, the British electorate was never going to put Corbyn in power, ever. And uh, a different Labour Party may well have produced a different outcome. Who knows? The third thing he's got going for him is the media, the British press. And they... Um, they back all the lies that he tells. The, the way in which the, the media has contributed to the Johnsonian myth yes. can't be understated. That's true. The, the Sun, 
the Daily Mail in particular, the Daily Express, the Daily Telegraph. That Daily Telegraph used to be a fantastic newspaper full of fantastic journalists who wrote proper articles about proper things. It's an absolute rag now because of the way in which it simply has sponsored Johnson. It sponsored his successor, um, Liz Truss. Remember her? She was a prime minister of the UK for a, for a little while. And so... We, we, we just I think it was almost like a collective form of madness that um, we, we thought once upon a time that Boris Johnson was a good idea. There's a fantastic book being serialized in The Times of London this week, which goes through an awful lot of episodes, the pandemic, um, all, all the different mm. things that Johnson has done. And some of it is absolutely jaw dropping in this. But we it's stuff that we knew, but we never realized just the scale of, of, of Johnson's. Mm. Uh, I think there's so many myths, though, Chris. Yeah. And, but the, the, but yeah. the, the thing that emerges from this book more than anything else mm. is that Johnson always thinks he can get through any kind of meeting, any kind of policy discussion, any time, kind of social gathering, any kind of debate in the House of Commons by telling a joke and trying to move the discussion onto something else that isn't difficult, that doesn't require attention to detail. We knew all of these things, but we, what, what this book reveals is just he does this all the time. He is an embarrassment to all that surround him because he tells these poor jokes, makes these poor speeches and pays no attention to detail. And made he actually made no effort to run the country. No. None at all. Well, I'm staggered. But I'm just, I'm still, I'm, I'm just looking at you but, and I'm going, so we no. thought that So in Britain, we thought this was a good idea to elect somebody like that. And then when he resigned, we, we thought that the Conservative Party, because she wasn't elected, thought it was a good idea to put Liz Truss in power. So maybe we had to go down so far yeah. and we're on some kind of gradual okay. um, return. Maybe, you know, Sunak's boring managerialism yeah. is something that has brought a sense of quiet relief to many of us yeah, in the it, UK. It's kind of a technocracy, yeah. a kind of a, yeah. there's a Bidenism there as well. It's kind a bit. Yeah. Boring, yeah, he's a bit younger than Biden, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things, like, I, I, I like digging deeper into this kind of phenomenon of how somebody like that can get there, not only publicly, but even within their own class, for example, their own class in inverted commas. I don't uh, think. And I remember, hang on, because I remember Petronella Wyatt, yes, um, a former uh, girlfriend of Boris Johnson. He got pregnant. Yeah, and. Uh, well, you know, that's well, girlfriend equals pregnant. Yes. <laughs> For him. <laughs> and uh, he, I think that um, she said, Boris has this thing. And he, there is, a, there is a fatal, there is a fatal crime you can commit if you were a member of that Etonian um, Oxford set. Whatever you do, be corrupt, be stupid, be idiotic, be conniving. At all costs, be found out, be caught. But do not be boring. Because to be boring is, for some reason, the most, the, the ultimate crime you can commit within this class system. You, oh, he's an awful bore. Ah, that's the word. That's the word. That rather than boring, it's being a bore. Hmm. And I don't know if ever you've read the Patrick Melrose novels. No. They were serialised on Sky brilliantly. And that was the thing that emerged. It was all about this class. Yeah, I remember the programme. It was all about this class. And it was absolutely right. The theme of the books was you can do anything. You can, you know, inject your toes with heroin. You you can (laughs) literally be any kind of human being, but do not be a bore. And this is one of those rules for this particular aristocratic set of people. 
Um, it's it it is their code of behaviour. It, it's a secret. Well, not so secret now because it's, it's kind a, of wildian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is how they behave. And and don't be a bore is the ultimate put down. You can be a mass murderer. Yeah. You can be any kind of criminal, but don't be a bore. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Um, the thing about this podcast that's a bit different to other podcasts is sometimes people call in to the podcast, Chris, and um, they they call in, and um, so uh, and and you you have to respond to them. Uh, so I think I think um, a friend of yours is on the line. Uh, say hello. Hello. How are you? This is um, Jim Power here, um, Chris. It's an absolute uh, honour to listen to you here uh, talking to Mario. Um, Chris, can I ask you? Why you aren't this forthcoming on our podcast and you're revealing all these intimate uh, personality traits to Mario, but uh, it's only economics and politics on... On our podcast. Well, Jim, as you know, I have to deal with you. I'm a bit offended, to be honest with you. Well, you, you're very, Jim, you, you, I, that, that's the problem, isn't it? You're too yeah. quick to take offence. And, and I never knew you were from Waterford either. You never told me that, so I'm offended there as well, so... I kept that secret from you. Well, you're you, hiding things from me, Chris. Yeah. Well, and that annoys me. Jim, as you is is uh, for our listeners, is a proud citizen of Waterford, or at least that's where he hails from, and he yeah. never ceases to remind me. So I, I've never actually revealed to him. Um, yeah. Well, I feel a bit like Boris that you're cheating on me now, Chris. Well, I suspect my Waterford roots are a bit more aristocratic than Jim's, actually. Right. Now you're rubbing rubbing me nose in it. So. Um, I am. Anyway, listen. Um, I look forward to our next Substack. And our next um, half an hour discussion on interest rates in Nigeria. Yeah, um, I, I, I think it's Ethiopia next time, Jim. Right. I'm looking forward to it already. Um, rubbing my hands together in Lee here, Chris. In the meanwhile, I'll could get back to listen to the real juicy stuff with you and Mario. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the Jeez, call. He's a live wire, isn't he? Yeah, you have to, keep, you have to sit on him. He's droll. Yeah, he's, he's got a very dry sense of humour. Sometimes people don't get it. Listen, Chris, you are an economist. Um, sometimes I like to ask questions like I'm a two-year-old. Will you bear with me while I ask you some of course. questions? Um, in good faith, by the way. I'm not trying to taunt you because uh, I've asked these questions many times before to myself, alone over a glass of wine, and I'd like you to help me to answer them. All right. You ready? I am. Okay. You're an economist. Okay. If economists can't predict anything, why do they keep predicting stuff? And why do we base our economic outlook on budgets and budgets on economists' predictions if everybody admits they can't predict anything? Proper economists don't forecast. And the reason why some economists still forecast is because there are idiots out there willing to pay them to do so. And if only people would stop paying them to forecast, we would stop forecasting. People pay good money for economic forecasts. And it's not just in the private sector. The IMF, the International Money Fund. It's known by other names, but it's based in Washington and it produces, spends huge amounts of global taxpayers' money on producing economic forecasts that it then somewhat ironically then at the chapter, at the, at a chapter at the end of every book the forecast it produces, it, it analyzes why it got its last forecast and the one before and the one before wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think it was 
Kenneth Galbraith um, a long time ago, famous Harvard economist yeah. who said that, you know, economic forecasts exist to make weather forecasts look good. And mm. um, it is not something we can do. It's not economists fault in, in my defense, yeah. Your Honor. Um, but they are quoted all the time yes. ad, ad infinitum yeah, not, daily on the radio. Not on my podcast, the no, other hand. No, but on the news, for example, they say the um, the ASRI pro, uh, pro project that there'll be 3% growth in the economy next year, that the economy, UK economy will have zero flatlining growth. Are they like... You, know. you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't spend taxpayers' money, let alone anybody else's, on economic forecasts. They are not worth the paper they are written on. Um, it would be much more honest to and cost-efficient to say something like, well, um, you've got two routes you can go down. You can spend tens of thousands of euros on lots of economists running lots of very fancy mathematical models of the economy and to produce a forecast that says the Irish economy is going to grow by 3% next year. Or you could ask somebody like me, who do it for nothing, to say, okay, just base your budget on the assumption, not the forecast, that the economy will grow by 3% next year. Or you could do something like say, well, let's not base our budget on anything at all. Let's just assume that the Irish economy stays flat and that tax tax revenues and we're going to base every decision about taxes, every decision about spending on what the outturn was. Because we actually do know what the outturn is as opposed yeah. to the forecast. There are lots of different ways of doing it. Yeah. But the reason why we keep doing it is because media organisations banner headlines on somebody. They love it. They, it gives them something to talk about. It's like the gambling odds. The peculiar thing is that nobody seems to learn. As you say, the headlines on RTE and all the other outlets say uh, Organisation X predicts that the economy is going to do this, interest rates are going to do that, and it, it's all nonsense. Mm. And and they should really just stop because it, forecasts are only ever right by accident. Yeah, yeah. As a lot of people make their living, though, by I, no offence to you, but I mean, a lot of organisations, like which I won't name, but I mean, you know, in town, and they're, they, they employ lots of people almost to create models and come up with these assumptions and come up with these estimates, which they then publish and then go on the news and, and disseminate across the media. And they're just bullshit. There is a branch of economics that is just pure PR. Mm. There's no doubt about that. But it's shrinking. The kind of people that you're describing there, um, there are less of them than there used to be. They used to be, I mean, it used to be what stockbrokers, economists and bank economists did almost full time. And um, to the extent that they do it, there are now less of them yeah. and they do other things. Economics is, va and I will defend economics, it's very valuable in all sorts of different ways, not for forecasting. And the economists in these organisations, they all still exist, tend to do different things and forecasting is just one of the things that they do. And frankly, most of them, most of them, I would guess, do it very reluctantly. They do it because their bosses expect them to, because they want the bosses want the name of their company on the RTE News as a pure PR marketing exercise. It's not because anybody's getting it right. Right. OK, next question, Your Honour. One of the issues I have is people who uh, are politicians and economists and financial people who talk about an entity called the markets. Now, the markets is in inverted commas and people use all sorts of um, expressions like, well, of course, the markets wouldn't like that or the markets are starting to get jumpy or the markets are a bit nervous today. I don't know how that will go down with the markets or we must consult the markets. Well, let's see how the markets deal with this. The markets will be the judge of that. Well, let's see what happens on Monday when the markets open. If I was a normal human being judged by what I heard on the radio and television, I would say the markets are a schizophrenic, greedy, paranoid lunatic who sits in the dark, shaking, 
with a half bottle of whiskey and a shotgun, um, wondering who's going to take their money. They sound like the most unstable, irrational person in the whole world, if it could be personified. Who are the markets? How many people are involved in the markets? Because let's face it, Chris, me and Ed here, who's recording this, neither of us, I mean, I speak for Ed freely, neither of us know anybody who's in the markets. I don't have any shares and I actually earn quite a good living. I doubt Ed has any shares. Ed doesn't buy government bonds or guilt bonds. I've never invested in the government. I know nobody who has. Either does Ed or anybody who knows me and we all know about a thousand people. What is the markets, Chris? And be sympathetic to my question. I am very sympathetic. You talked earlier to me about my love of words. Um, what you're doing is anthropomorphizing the markets. You're, you're pretending that they're an entity, almost a human entity. And of course, they're not. You're wrong when you say you've never invested. You have. Um, okay. You've invested. You, I've invested. no idea whether um, you've got a pension fund or not. You don't need to tell me, but you probably have. If you haven't, You've got some money invested in the markets via Ireland's um, recently grown, uh, we call it a sovereign wealth fund. It's it's the fund that they're channeling all the excess corporation tax revenues into. Yeah. Um, the finance minister bunged a cool four billion into it only the other day. Yeah. And he's planning to put a lot more into it. That's your money and it will be invested in the market. Okay, I do have a pension fund. Yeah, which right? will, so therefore you, you are invested in the markets. I am and it has gone down every year. Well, that's not that. Well, you need to talk to your your investment manager. But it's just an average one. Um, well, there's nothing special about. It. I haven't done anything risky. He's just. Gone, I'm sorry, it's gone down again. Well, your fund manager is doing a very bad job for you. Though. Why? Uh, he's not very good at his job or but her the, job. But but everybody else who's involved in the fund has obviously gone down as well. That's correct. Yeah. Right. So yeah. he's doing a bad job for everybody. Yes. But this would be. I won't name the name. This mm. would be one of the biggest firms in in, in Ireland. Yes. I'm, so I'm, they're all doing a bad job. Well, that particular one is. I can't speak to all of them. Not all pension funds have gone down every year for okay. the last few years. Some have. I mean, during the financial crisis and in some some of the years that followed during the well during the financial crisis and the pandemic, your everybody's funds would have gone down because yeah. every market went down. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't been every year. Um, if you'd invested between two thousand and nine and 2019 you should have done very very well right. and if you hadn't if you haven't done very well in those years you need to have a very serious conversation with your fund manager well, Ed put me on to him so Ed you're fired <laughs> but markets the reason why economists and other people like the markets is that because is they are very impactful Liz Truss found this out last summer because it was the markets that did her in and it was the government bond market that did her in that's why politicians pay attention to markets. Economists don't pay attention in that way. We're not that interested in the short-term gyrations of markets, which, as you say, are insane and casino-like. And nobody should pay too much attention, any attention, to day-to-day -day markets. But why did the markets bring down Liz Truss if they knew what the markets would do? This, the markets didn't decide to bring down Liz Truss. What Liz Truss did was that she did something incredibly stupid with respect to economic policy. It was insane. It was mad. What Why she... didn't somebody tell her it was insane? I suspect they did, but I don't think Liz Truss is a very good listener. But do you think it would have been an autonomous decision of hers to do that then? It's been reasonably well documented by people on the inside that she took this crazy decision to introduce a particular form of budget you know, spending yeah, and was and, allowed to do so, and was allowed to because between her and the Chancellor, they have the power. That's the way Britain works. So, so much for the theory that the blob yeah. controls everything. Correct. So that then blew up the British government bond market. In very simply, the price of government debt went down, and then that blew up an obscure corner of the pension fund market. So market, 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 and it blew her 
prime minister prime minister's job up she, she left because of what happened in the markets that's one of the reasons why politicians sometimes run scared of markets but day to day i mean there are lots of headlines in markets about them doing this doing that and it's it's just what we call noise it, you're just looking at, at stuff but do you get what i'm saying about the way people talk about mm. them as 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 uh, that there's the re- there's reverence kind of paid to it as if we must be very careful how we tread around this this moody you know Goliath this smoothie Leviathan that's yeah. that's sitting over there in the corner that could suddenly decide to beat the shit out of us at any moment's notice yeah and it depends whether you think the markets are doing a, a sensible job or a completely irrational job markets can keep governments honest I mean, if markets didn't exist in things like government debt uh, governments would do all sorts of crazy things like Liz Trust did that, that, so they do act as a kind of independent unemotional check or balance on what governments can and cannot do where the, where it goes wrong where the system has gone wrong and this is the bit that i would agree with you is that markets should essentially serve a social purpose they should be um we should be master of markets not in the sense of directing them yep. but markets should exist to bring us benefits mm. now if markets are out of control for any one of a number of reasons and that can be that um too few too few people actually do control them um they're not these atomized uh, completely unemotional things that in some sense they're rigged that can happen um markets more gen because not just markets for financial instruments the biggest market thing that there is a problem with at the moment the reason why economists like markets is that no one person can control them when you have a proper market whether that's a financial market for your stock market or for your, the price of your bananas it doesn't actually matter but economists don't like anybody getting too much control over one sector of the market because it normally means that somebody else is going to get screwed with too high prices or rigged prices or a rigged market and so that's why we like lots of competition we like lots of different markets we like lots of different people no one individual being in control of anything there are too many markets in the world too many markets that are rigged that are controlled by cartels and um, that's a real global social problem and you we live in a winner takes all world mm. in all sorts of different ways some of it you can sympathize with it premiership footballers it's winner takes all we understand that good reasons for that most of us will applaud it and say there's nothing wrong with that that's just the way the world works that's that's it but when it comes to a whole host of other things you can see it in the way that uh, share prices behave and ultimately you can see it in this great debate that western societies have been having for the last couple of decades now about rising inequality that the the rising tide that it's the the, tr- the increasing pie to switch metaphors hasn't lifted hasn't been shared by all people and it's the top 1% that are getting all the gains from markets that's because too many markets are rigged in too few people's favor this is my, leads to my next question well answered thanks very much chris um uh, my next question. You, you mentioned their inequality, right? So yesterday, I think the chief executive of Google was paid circa 250 million in a yearly stipend. And that was his salary for the year. It wasn't his salary. It was a, bit, a salary, bit of cash but, no, and, and a whole bonuses, dollar of shares. It was cashable uh, bonuses. Eventually it'll, eventually it'll be cash. Exactly. This amounted to 800 times the average um, salary in Google. And Google people and, are well paid. And Google people get paid a lot of money. So my question to you is, and this is a hard question to answer, so you'll have to use all your um, sort of um, almost self-editing skills to do it. But are you a capitalist? And if so, why? 
I am, but only from that perspective of there being markets that work. I hate markets that are rigged. And what we have in too many sectors are markets that are rigged. We don't have capitalism. And that might mm. seem like a, a bit of a weasel answer. But, what does you know, that mean, though? We don't have capitalism. Well, in the old days, in the United States, for example, you used to have something called antitrust, which is American jargon for anti-monopolies. You used to have mm. civil servants used to go in and oh, yeah. bust companies up. Yes. Um, a great example was Getty's Standard Oil. Yeah. Uh, the Rockefellers had their empire broken up. Yes. Um, lots of examples in history where, you know, too much economic power was yes. concentrated in too few hands and the American authority said, nah, this is wrong. Yeah. And it is wrong okay. because it leads to bad societal outcomes and it leads to things like inequality mm. and it leads to ordinary right. punters paying too much for yeah. the goods that are produced by those people. But we don't do this anymore. We don't do antitrust anymore. We allow all these companies to be effective monopolies and to be able to pay their top geezers that kind of money. It shouldn't happen. Um, there's an argument for a lot of the big tech companies, in my view, to be broken up. Facebook should have been broken up a long time ago. Yeah. It should not own things like WhatsApp and yeah. all the other things that it owns. Um, but we've just forgotten how to do these things. Well, slightly different angle to the question, though. So for, I'll just do a little tiny rant, first of all, right? And so you, you'll know what I'm saying. And so it's up, I want you, if you can, to address the rant. So circa, let's say, 44 million people in the United States on food stamps. You see the increasing prevalence of food banks in one of the greatest countries in the world, supposedly, the United Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, it's food banks it's everywhere. You're talking about people who have jobs, full-time jobs, going to food banks in England. It's the system that has resulted in this outcome. The system has percolated this outcome. The system has filtered through these outcomes. That there are a very small percentage of people with everything who use the law to bully everybody else out of having anything. And it is the vast majority who have either little or nothing who are forced into multiple slave-like jobs to help the uh, Borg continue. Um, the economic historian, Rutger Bregman, the Dutch guy who I'm sure you're familiar with, yep. he has said, because he's a historian and he's done, you know, he's, he's, he's tried to look at this, that human beings are actually at their best and produce the best outcomes when they are altruistic, not greedy and not terrible to each other. So can you maybe address this whole issue? Economies are too rigged in the ways that I suggested with the outcome that you've just outlined there is that we live, as I say, in this winner-takes-all world where a vanishingly small number of people take most of the gains. And that is leading to all... I think that is partly why we got Donald Trump and Brexit is because the people who have been screwed by the system reacted against being screwed, yeah. quite understandably. They've That they voted for the wrong things, that they voted for people and events that didn't help them is almost beside the point. Um, th the reason why they are protesting, the reason why they are revolting, you can understand why this is happening. Um, there are big forces out there, this, it, but nobody decided this. Nobody, I, I am not a conspiracy theorist. Nobody said that this is the way it was going to be. It's an emergent process of many different kinds. The reason why there are no manufacturing jobs of the old kind left in the United States in automobiles, in steel and all those other things is that it's machines that make all those goods now. And the, the biggest problem that is one of the problems that the West hasn't dealt with in for decades, this is a little bit economic, -y, but bear, bear with me, is that we automated all of these jobs 
so that America still produces loads of cars, but robots produce them. So what happened to all of the car workers? What happened to the Virginia coal miners? What happened to the steel workers of Pittsburgh? Um, was that they got screwed. And the American society as a whole benefited from the fact that the robots made a lot of the stuff domestically and the stuff that wasn't there, we, they imported from China and from other third world countries that were industrializing. So there were some good things that happened from that in that nearly 700 million Chinese people were lifted out of poverty by what happened in that economy. Good thing. But no, nothing was ever done to compensate the people of Virginia, the people of Detroit, the people of Pittsburgh for the jobs that they lost. And so that that's a very complex story in which there were lots of winners, but also lots of losers. And the thing that our societies have been absolutely hopeless at for years has been compensating the losers, doing something about it, giving them money, um, preventing them from going to food banks, retraining them, finding other jobs for them. That's the bit that we've absolutely failed. Ireland's been very lucky in this regard in that you don't have this vast cohort of steel workers, miners, automobile workers. You never had that phase of industrialization that you then all of a sudden had to try and figure out what are we going to do with all these people that we don't need anymore? And when that question, that question wasn't even asked in places like the UK and the United States, they were just thrown on the scrap heap. And so their communities died. Um, they festered. And uh, I think things like Brexit and Donald Trump, populism in general, those particular examples are, are the result of that. And when you have these kinds of things happening, um, which um, we call them emergent processes, nobody sits down and says, this is the way it's going to be. This kind of thing emerged from a whole host of things, um, automation, robots, the rise of China, the rise of other countries to produce this outcome, which we handled from a policy perspective appallingly badly to create the inequalities that have led to all of the social problems that we've described. It isn't capitalism. It's a particular form of um, economic structure that nobody would design. But that's what we've got. Not everywhere. No, not everywhere. I mean, for example, just to skew the, the argument slightly, and I mean, it's unfair of me to do that in a way, but you'll know what I mean. Uh, and, and it's this. So, for example, um, this is a, a huge skewing, but, but like there's a gun problem in the United States. OK, that leads to what? Many, many mass shootings. There is no mass. There are no mass shootings in the United Kingdom or Germany or broadly or France. Why? Because there is no gun problem. All right. So that's kind of causality. In my view, similarly, um, it costs one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand to send your kid to school or university in um, in the United States, depending on the level of school. In Finland, it doesn't cost anything because all the schools in Finland are state-run broadly, and that means that the rich kids go to school in the same in the same school as the poor kids. What happens then? The rich kids grow up with the rich poor kids. What happens then? It gets more difficult for rich kids to screw poor kids when they become adults because they are your peers. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I'm, I'm falling into the trap of going, yeah, we all need to go Swedish, man. Uh, social democratic. System. I thought you were going to say that, actually, that we need to be more like the Scandinavian countries. But I am saying maybe not, but, but I am verging that I'm, I'm veering towards that, that more that that more um, taxes to take care of childcare, more taxes to take care of universal health care, more taxes for proper roads and infrastructure is the answer. It's part of the answer. And the, one of the ways in which both the United Kingdom and the US in particular have gotten policy completely 
arseways in recent decades is, is the education system. Um, one of the reasons why the UK has this elite produced in the way that you described earlier on is because of the peculiar nature of its private education system. 7% of kids in the UK go to private school and they've been taking up all of the places at Oxbridge is, is what, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge universities. And that creates an elite. And then more language, we get something called assortative mating. Oh, I love it. Assorted, they marry each other. Oh, OK. <laughs> and so you, you, you do not get any more... Um, doctors marrying nurses or um, bosses marrying their secretaries. It, it, that sort of thing has, has reduced because this class increasingly just stays within its own high walls. Um, and all of these social consequences of of different things happening, like the fact that you've lost your industrial manufacturing base, um, the education system is screwed. Uh, it's it's The thing I would say to you, Mary, is that one of the things about all of this, it, and you can tell from the way I talk about it, I always try to give a sense that it is incredibly complicated. Mm, and I accept that. And that the populist response yes. to complexity is always to pretend it's simple. Yes. Sinn Féin do it here. We know that. Um, Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times does it every single time he writes an article. You know, if only I was in charge, there's one button button I would push and that would solve every single problem that we've got. I'd transform Ireland, hellhole Ireland, into something quite magnificent if only I was in charge. We have these populist-style uh, politicians and writers who, who pretend that it... I think the quintessential definition of populism for me is pretending it's all very simple, and it ain't. It is really, really complicated. But there are... You know, the, the outcome isn't. We know that the food bank situation, the education system, the class system in the UK um, are all contributors to this problem. But what do you do about it? And I think the answer is in part what you say is that, yeah, I mean, everybody in the UK, anybody involved in policy circles, for example, knows that there is absolutely no way that whatever government is elected in, because they'll have a general election about the same time as Joe Biden or Donald Trump is going to be elected next year, it be roughly the same time, we think. And whichever government wins in the UK is going to have to put taxes up because the, the, the infrastructure of the country is so frayed now and the education system is so knackered. The health service, the health service in the yeah. UK isn't on its knees. It's on its back. Yeah. It's broken. But I'm an, obviously I'm not an economist. Mm. But taxes are going to have to go up in these a, sorts of places. Just as a kind of a, a, a layman's look at it, right? I mean, the only one of the I'll give you an examples of times that like, for example, the, the New Deal in 1933. Franklin Roosevelt coincided with an, with a massive, let's say, investment in the economy, an investment of public works um, in the economy. It seems to me that, like, again, please, I don't want to pretend even I'm 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 an amateur at this because I'm not. I'm useless. But it seems to me that investment often leads to growth, and investment needs to be paid for by taxes. But one thing leads to another, and the follow-on growth, if you like, is 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 a kind of an exponential. Uh, momentum, kind of a rolling stone kind of thing. It gathers. It's not always guaranteed no. to happen that way, but uh, a lot of the time, a well, high percentage of the time, if you invest in your economy, you'll get growth. And pretty much most of the time, if you don't invest in your economy, you won't get and growth. Britain for the last 12, 13 years. And Britain for the last okay. God knows how long hasn't invested in itself and therefore hasn't got any okay. growth. My thanks to Chris Johns. And on on our next episode, part two of this chat, we talk about can Sinn Féin actually solve the housing crisis? Why we're all 
wired to resist change and the growing fears that artificial intelligence, this is very interesting, is going to have a devastating impact on the world and mankind as we know it. Uh, you can contact me, Mario Rosenstock at gmail.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook, on Twitter at GiftGrubMario. Um, and I get back to 95% of the people uh, that email me. Um, so take it handy. It's episode two of Chris John's next week, which I really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you are too. Bye bye.